We have been journeying through the book of Philippians, took a couple of weeks break with Confirmation Sunday and Father's Day. So today we turn to chapter 4 and we read verses 1 through 3, living in harmony. We've heard good harmony this morning in the singing. It's a picture of what we ought to be as a church. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given, the privilege to gather, to worship you, to praise you. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that your word is truth. I pray that you would sanctify us today in that truth. And I would ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Have you ever heard a song sung by a group of people who really struggled to harmonize? (laughs) It's kind of like one of those things where when the song is over, you just breathe a sigh of relief. Say, oh, that was painful. (laughs) Glad that's done. Um, I remember singing a trio one time, my two brothers and I. It was my mother and father's 50th anniversary. And we had, I don't think we had ever sung together. Uh, you know one of my brothers well. He's a good singer, but the other two of the brothers uh, probably aren't necessarily the best. And so I was wondering what it sounded like. And I was thinking people just breathe a, a sigh of relief. Uh, kind of like taking what, Pepto-Bismol, oh, what a relief it is. The song song was over. Uh, There's something wonderful, though, when people sing in harmony together. I think of the the Gaither vocal band. Have you ever heard their version of the, uh, what do we call it? No, the Star Spangled Banner or the National Anthem? (laughs) It is awesome. And you hear those parts of harmony. It's like, what a beautiful thing when people are singing in harmony. Same is true in the life of a congregation. When a congregation is living in harmony, when there is unity, when there is care for one another, when there is love and concern, that is a beautiful picture. But we know that we have an enemy of our soul who wants to disturb that unity. He wants to destroy the fellowship of of God's people And Paul addresses that in this passage of Scripture today. Harmony in this congregation, in the Philippian church, was was being threatened. And he says in verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, some translations don't use that phrase. uh, Things like agree together. I love the picture of of harmony. (laughs) Living in harmony. Harmony. And so, what does it look like? What does it look like when we are living in harmony? And what do we do when conflict may threaten that harmony? 
that can happen. I've seen it in other churches. I've heard about when division comes in. So what do we do? How do we live in harmony? I would suggest there are three lessons that Paul gives us in this text. First of all, when we live in harmony, we view conflict with great concern. Conflict with great concern. When you look at the history of the early church, you will notice that Satan tried to attack the church in two primary ways. The first way was not so successful, an attack from the outside by persecution. Satan tried to stop the growth of the church by stirring up opposition against it. And if you read in the book of Acts, you will notice that that kind of backfired. In chapter 8, it describes this persecution that came upon the church. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was one of those. It says in verse 3 that Saul began to ravage the church, entering house after house, bringing or dragging off men and women and put them in prison. But it's interesting what happened. God used that persecution to cause the gospel to spread. Because verse 4 of Acts 8 says, Therefore those who had been scattered went everywhere preaching the word. <laughs> so God turned that persecution from the outside into a great blessing. Reminds me of what happened to the children of Israel. Remember when they were in Egypt and they were being persecuted by the Egyptians? Exodus 1.12 says, The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And so persecution has a way of uniting the church. Because we have a common enemy, and when there's a common enemy, you tend to join together, right? That's kind of how it works. You need each other to survive. So that attack from the outside really wasn't that successful in the early church. The second one was more successful. The second way that Satan attacked the church was division from within. Satan was tempting believers to be at odds with each other. And if you read through the New Testament epistles, in, in, in some cases, there, Satan was successful. I think of the, the Corinthian church. Well, they were divided into little factions. Some said, I am of Paul. And others said, I am of Apollos. And I'm of Cephas or Peter. That other says, I'm of Christ. They had all these different groups, these factions within the congregation. And that was not a good thing. It was not a good thing. And I would say that one of the greatest challenges that churches face is, is, is to remain united together. Because Satan wants to come in, create division, cause conflict, cause people within the fellowship of God's people they have trouble with one another. And so Paul addresses this issue here in Philippi. In fact, if you've been with us as we've been going through this book, you remember that he, he talks about unity over and over again. Let me just remind you of a few verses. Chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, you are standing firm, notice, in one spirit, with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. (laughs) So it's like this is an issue that he is addressing over and over again. And so as we come to chapter 4, Paul Paul becomes very direct here in in addressing the congregation. He isn't speaking in, in general terms, hoping that the ones who need to hear this will listen. <laughs> I mean, he, he pleads with a couple of ladies in the congregation who evidently weren't getting along, and he names them by name. I urge Euodia. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but if I say it with authority, you'll think, well, that's the way it's pronounced. And I urge Sintiki or Sintiki or whatever to live in harmony in the Lord. Naming them. Now, I've often wondered what it must have been like sitting in that gathering. Of course, they didn't have Bibles like we do. This letter was read to the congregation. So, you're sitting there and Paul is talking about unity and all these things. And then he gets to this section where he addresses these women by name. It's like, whoa, <laughs> that's, uh, that's bold. Uh, Kent Hughes says, if anyone was nodding off in the Philippian assembly, while the letter was being read, they were awake now. Certainly Paul was gentle, diplomatic, and respectful, But to be named thus in the letter by the great apostle, all eyes were now upon whom? (laughs) Probably those two ladies. Woo! I wonder what would happen if I did that today. I think my last Sunday will have arrived, right? Deacons will be waiting at the door and say, we can find someone else to preach for a few weeks. Now maybe you're wondering, you know, if, if Paul was a little... A little too bold here. But that's how seriously he must have viewed a division within the congregation. It wasn't just a minor issue that could be ignored because what happens when there is division? What happens when there is conflict? It has a tend to grow. It tends to grow, right? It can be like an infection that, that if it's not dealt with can cause real problems. So you have one woman who who is, has an issue with another woman, and, and I don't know if they were doing this, but you know you got one saying to their fr- her friends, you know, yeah, you know what Euodia did, you know, and then the other woman's, you know, and then you got these these sides, right? You got these 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 factions. I've heard of churches who have gone through that, and when you come to church on Sunday morning, you better sit on the right the right side of the congregation. It's like. Really? You're coming here to worship the Lord and you make sure you're on the right side because if you're on that other side, you got issues with them. You know? How sad is when that happens. And Satan loves it. He loves when there's division in the congregation. And so that first lesson Paul gives it, we need to, we need to see this, uh, view it with, with, with concern, with great concern. 
Not ignoring it, hoping it'll, it'll go away. Secondly, when we live in harmony, we approach conflict with great care. Great care. Anytime there's sin that needs to be confronted, it must be done with, with great care. None of us, I'm assuming this, none of us really like to be told we're wrong. Anybody here just love to be told you're wrong? Huh? How many of you love it when your spouse tells you you're wrong? That just makes you want to hug them, doesn't it? Oh, honey, thank you. I've just been waiting to be corrected because I know I'm, I'm failing in so many ways. Are there any other things I've done wrong? Let's, as long as we're doing this, let's, let's, let's really be open here. None of us want to be told we're wrong. And that's why the manner in which correction is given is important, isn't it? There's a right way and there's a wrong way to deal with things like this. And so notice how Paul used, I think, great care in addressing this. For one thing, he made it clear that his motivation was love for them. Notice how he identifies those to whom he's writing in verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy... And my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm sharing this with you because I love you. I love you. I, I care about you. And when we know that we are loved, that doesn't make being corrected just fun and easy. But there's a difference, isn't there, when you know that someone loves you enough to say, you know, this really isn't, isn't good. Okay, so, so the motivation there was love. And, and Paul showed care here also by mentioning not just the, the negative, but the, the positive about these ladies. Verse 3, Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. What does that say? Paul is saying that these women have been united with me in the proclamation of the gospel. They have worked side by side with me. Well, it's not as if everything was bad in the lives of these women, that they were just some you know, horrible spiritual failures. I mean, that's, that's not at all the tone of this. Paul appreciated them greatly. And when they heard this positive... Doesn't that have a way of maybe softening the blow a little bit? I mean, if we just come and just start beating someone with, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that. So Paul used some, some wisdom there. So he was direct, and yet he was, was still gentle too. I think of the picture in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Notice that's the goal, right? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the word restore here was used in Paul's day for setting a broken bone. Restoring. How do you set a broken bone? You grab it and just put it together. You don't do that, right? You're gentle. You're as gentle as you can be when there's a broken bone. I remember when our son Andrew broke two bones in his wrist, had to have both of them surgically repaired. 
And I still remember the guy that, uh, one of the guys at the hospital, he grabbed his wrist like, and I could see Andrew was ready to take his other arm and whop him in the chin. I mean, it was just, it was, it was not, it was not done gently. And then I think of another lady in a congregation I served before. She had a broken arm, I think it was. And, and I asked her, I said, uh, did it hurt when they said it? Oh, you bet it did, she said. I said, what did you do? She said, I used my cheerleader voice. <laughs> I'm assuming it was fairly loud. Um, so gentleness with care. And so when we are faced with those situations where we need to confront someone. The way in which it's done is important, isn't it? We see that here with, with Paul. Thirdly, he says, when we live in harmony, we resolve conflict with great commitment. We don't ignore it. That, that, that's often the, we would say the easy way, right? Just Overlook everything, just ignore it, don't confront it, um, pretend it isn't there, kind of like an elephant in the room. Paul says that it doesn't work that way. It takes effort to resolve conflict, and we need to take responsibility for that and deal with it. And obviously it begins with those who are at odds with one another, because Paul is addressing these two ladies, and he's saying, you need to live in harmony. You need to deal with this. You need to get rid of this conflict that you have with, with one another. And the best way to resolve conflict is, is to begin one-on-one with the, the, the two people that are at issue with one another. The, the first response should not be to go to someone else and say, you know what they did to me? Or go to someone else and say, you better fix this. I've had that told me before as a pastor. There's conflict between two individuals and they come to me and expect me to fix it. And what do you think the first question I ask? Well, have you gone to that person? Well, no. Well, that would be the first step, right? Wouldn't it be the first? Well, yeah, I suppose, but I, no, I don't know if I can do that. Well, I said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved in this if you haven't dealt with it. And, and and the best way to deal with it is eyeball to eyeball, right? Face to face. Text or email or leave a voicemail because there's way too much opportunity for misunderstanding, right? I mean, how many? Times have you written someone something to someone and they took it just very differently than you wrote it because they couldn't hear you, they couldn't see you. So I think that's that's important. But what if you aren't the one who was wrong? What what if uh, you look at the situation and say I didn't do anything wrong? They're the ones that uh, did something wrong. They're the cause of the conflict, um, and they should come crawling on their hands and knees to me. Or felt that way. Um, you know what? It really doesn't matter who is at fault. If there are issues, we're, we're responsible to, to deal with that, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, verses 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, 
And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. And then Jesus said, first, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What is he saying by that? Is he not saying that how can you come and approach God and praise Him if you've got issues with your brother? Deal with that first. Go. Be, be the one who says, you know, there's issues between us and we need to resolve them. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus. Maybe members of the same congregation. Um, that's how we deal with those things. I think that's what, why Paul uses the word urge twice in this. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. What's he say? Ladies, both of you are responsible in this. Regardless of what happened, I urge you both. They both had a role in, in that conflict. Now what's interesting about this is that you would expect those who are spiritually immature or those who are new in the faith, yeah, they're going to have conflicts, but, but not the ones who are, you know, involved in ministry or, you know, not new Christians. These women were not spiritually immature women. They were women who were involved in the ministry. Uh, Paul says, you know, you, you've been with me. You, you've shared in my struggle in the gospel. They were, they were involved in, in, in ministry. And yet they still had something, we don't know what it was, but something that was causing conflict. One author says the tragic conflict between these two women reveals that even the most mature, faithful, and committed people can be in conflict. That's true. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. In fact, Paul, wouldn't we say that Paul knew this from experience? Remember the conflict he had with one of his missionary pals? Remember that? Paul and Barnabas? They were going to go back and, and, and visit some of the places where they were. And, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark, John Mark. And Paul says, no way. He deserted us on the previous journey. He's not reliable. How can we take him? And the book of Acts says in, in chapter 15, verse 39, that there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So even Paul and Barnabas... Can you picture that? Well, you ought to be able to picture that because they still had old natures too, right? You know, missionaries, pastors have old natures. Well, you know that. You've been with me for a long time. There can be those challenges, those struggles, even among people who have walked with the Lord for a long time. So if two people just can't seem to get along, Maybe they don't even want to get along. Is that possible? There's a difference between disagreeing and being disagreeable, huh? Is there? 
And sometimes you face situations where you have two people at odds with each other, and they, they, they don't want to resolve it. They want to hold on to it. And I've got some reason to be upset and be bitter, and I, of course I have a right to feel this way. I always have a right to feel this way. Well, what, what happens then? Well, Paul has an answer for that. He said in verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women. Help them. Help them who have shared my struggle in the gospel, in the cause of the gospel, gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, encourage them to, to reconcile. Don't, don't just say it's, it's not my business. I'm not going to stick my nose into anybody else's business, right? Ever said that? That's just, that's, that's not my problem, that's, that's their problem. Well, if they're part of the body and it's causing issues, then, then it is our problem, isn't it? It is. And it's important. It's important that believers live in harmony. John MacArthur's comment on this passage is, is worth noting. He says, The twice-repeated phrase, I urge, I urge, shows Paul to be in a pleading, begging, encouraging mode as he addressed the issue of these women. The apostles' mention of such a seeming, seemingly mundane matter after the lofty doctrinal material of chapter 2 And the warnings against dangerous false teachers in chapter 3 may seem surprising. But Paul understood that discord and divisiveness pose an equally crippling threat to the church. Even if its doctrine is sound, disunity robs a church of its power and destroys its testimony. And a church facing hostile, extreme enemies cannot afford to have its members fighting among themselves. Now think of that in light of the future. What are are churches going to face in the future? We are going to face more persecution from the outside. Count on it. In in one form or another, legally, legally, Physically, I mean, unless something drastic happens, we are are headed down a road where we're going to be attacked more. We need to be together, don't we? We need to have harmony as the body of Christ. Sticking together in a culture that is going to make it more difficult to be a believer. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 3, which was read this morning, that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does diligent mean? It means being focused, being, being uh, working at it, making sure that the unity we have in Christ, because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one calling, we are one in Christ. We need to live that out, right? On a daily basis. But let me just summarize with three reasons why we need to live in harmony. Number one, harmony is important for the sake of those in conflict. It really is. 
Unresolved conflict. What does that do to you? It's no good for you. It steals our joy. It it hinders relationships. It's no good for those in conflict. Secondly, harmony is important for the sake of the body of Christ because unresolved conflict can cause great problems in a, in a congregation. And then third, harmony is important for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. They're watching us. They're observing how we live our lives, how we treat one another. We don't want to put a roadblock in the way. I give excuses to people to say, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. These people, they can't even get along and, 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 and stuff like that. That is just not good for evangelism, is it? When people see believers that love each other and care about each other, I'll tell you what, that's a powerful testimony, a powerful witness. And that kind of love draws people because they don't find it. In the world, they don't find it on the job. They might not even find it in their home, but they find it within the family of God. Oh, what a difference that makes! So let me ask you: Are you living in harmony with others in the body of Christ? Are you? In, in Psalm one thirty-three, verse one, the psalmist says, "Behold, how good." And how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's a wonderful thing. We celebrated my oldest brother's 50th wedding anniversary yesterday. A lot of our kids and grandkids were there. And it was just a joy to be together. To have brothers that would love each other. And we had our, we had our little issues when we were teenagers, I suppose. But to be able to express that kind of love, that's a pleasant thing. That's a good thing. That's what God would want for every congregation to dwell together in harmony. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one body. Help us to live in light of that, Lord. Help us to live in harmony as we endeavor to to live out our unity with you and our unity with one another, as we endeavor to be a witness to the world around us. Lord, thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.